Porter QI presents Quality for the Rest of Us with Gail Porter. Investigating the mysterious world of healthcare in search of adventurous innovation and exciting solutions from professionals across the nation. As I prepped for my labor and delivery student clinical experience, I groaned loudly when I heard that this unit still utilized paper charting. What an archaic, tedious, inefficient use of our time. I could type up to 150 words per minute and I adored electronic charting. Paper charting felt like the dark ages to me. How shocking to discover that the expectations for paper charting were dramatically different than I expected. Gone were the lengthy rote notes explaining that the patient's call light was within reach and that I would monitor them. In the paper chart, these basic elements are assumed and only exceptions and vital information would be documented. The time of birth, vital signs, baby's first feeding. Since that day, I have met nurses and physicians who left jobs or refused to apply based on the electronic charting system. I don't want to spend the whole day entering codes in the charting system, one ER nurse explained. If I worked at that facility, I couldn't chart and still do my job. It's been nearly 10 years since the advent of mandatory electronic charting. Surely all those medical professionals have gotten over their hang-ups about electronic charting by now. But I have to be honest, at this point in my career, even I have had those same wistful thoughts about returning to paper charting that I used to scoff at. Why is that? Maybe we need to look at how electronic charting is going for the United States as a nation. Did we reach our goals, or did we just accentuate our problems through automation? Bill Gates once said, The first rule of any technology used in a business is that automation applied to an efficient operation will magnify the efficiency. The second is that automation applied to an inefficient operation will magnify the inefficiency. Paper charting was never an efficient process, but it was a necessary one to ensure continuity of care. If a patient moved from one floor to another, one department to another, or one doctor to another, a record of the symptoms and treatments needed to go with them. How many times in the movies and television shows does a doctor whip a clipboard off the bedside, flip some pages in a precursory glance, and then announce the very cure the patient needs? That's the paper chart the doctor is perusing. If these scenes reflected current practice, the doctor would be wheeling around a computer and spend the entire encounter bathed in the unnatural blue light of a plasma screen, barely glancing at the patient. But television and movies at least get one part right. The paper chart was so much simpler than the data dump doctors currently have to pour over. And so much of our current documentation requirements, and so much of our current documentation requirements' reason for existence, starts with, we have to do this because except the rationale is almost never a bedside clinical reason like continuity of care. The requirements come from multiple, quote, stakeholders who have little skin in the game when it comes to patient outcomes and survival. Some of them may not even be in the same state. Sally in the quality department isn't going to live or die if the doctor ignores the patient to fill out a chart, so she doesn't end up with a fallout on her CMS submission. But Pete, the guy on the verge of cardiac arrest on the other side of the monitor, is looking pretty desperate. 
As a bedside nurse who became a quality professional, I can't help but question this balance between patient care and the demands of documentation away from the bedside. Have we created charting priorities that focus on convenience for auditors and financial outcomes rather than patient survival and wellness? Nearly 10 years ago, we were presented with the glorious future of meaningful use, including the use of, quote, certified health records, national adoption of standards, and e-prescription capability. Meaningful use would improve efficiency at the bedside and enhance patient engagement. Very similar promises to the promises of artificial intelligence and interoperability today. Except we wouldn't need AI and interoperability if mandatory e-charting and meaningful use had actually been successful. Initially, one of the goals of e-documentation was to improve care coordination between providers and facilities. But this improved visibility is not yet realized due to HIPAA privacy laws, coupled with the pervasive presence of privacy breaches, which is why the Atlantis of secure, shareable medical records continue to be a priority through Health Level 7 interoperability standards. Meanwhile, care coordination is an ongoing risk for patients across the healthcare spectrum. In other words, these days, patients often find that their medical data is treated as a closely protected commodity that they may or may not be given access to. Meanwhile, patient data has never been more vulnerable. Data breaches and cyber attacks at hospitals run rampant, as e-charts full of personal information look like Spanish galleons full of gold sailing in the Caribbean to data pirates. Meanwhile, the El Dorado of patient continuity remains elusively out of reach, as transferring it between facilities is just as hard as it ever was when we were mailing or faxing the paper chart. Another goal of high-tech policy was to reduce disparities and improve public health, but as patient access to care and healthcare disparity are still at the top of the to-do list in public policy, it's clear that these problems have not yet resolved through electronic charting. If anything, electronic charting has deepened those disparities. Coding and documentation practices, particularly the depth and quality of documentation for a patient encounter, vary widely across the nation with the poorest, most understaffed providers proving unable to keep up with the documentation requirements. Another hope for the e-chart was the tremendous research potential that could come from population data, especially the potential of retrospective studies that could study patients who used a certain therapy and see how they're doing today. No need for a clinical trial because the live patient history would suffice. Instead, we continue with the same research techniques gathering small, homogenous cohorts to monitor as they undergo their treatment, thereby limiting studies to those with the most funding potential or in other words, majority populations with money to spend on novel therapies. But what about the hope of improved quality and safety? There are successes here with e-prescriptions, particularly in the area of opioid monitoring and the ease of auditing safety, mortality, and quality protocols within an organization. For one thing, on paper, it could be difficult to share a physical chart when more than one person needed to use it. In addition to alleviating these actual physical limitations, the advent of state opioid monitoring programs alone is estimated to save an average of 10 lives per day in the U.S. by informing providers when a patient already has an active opioid prescription from another provider, 
and could be at risk of an overdose. This is the stuff we hoped for, that providers could make more informed decisions about care through the availability of electronic data to improve patient health and survival. But I also see how much potential is unrealized or unnecessarily burdensome. What could be done to realize these objectives and avoid creating new bureaucracy and excess regulations that bear little to no fruitful advances in patient care? If technology alone does not make us more efficient, and the access of outside stakeholders naturally increases the burden on clinicians, how can we improve what we have? I am not so delusional as to think that going back to paper would truly solve our problems. I love my tech, but I'd like to see real advancements for our efforts. So here are a few thoughts. Number one, we need proactive data security. Most healthcare organizations have highly reactive information security and a very low level of awareness among employees about the risk of a privacy breach. For urgent incidents, there is a 24-7 toll-free phone number. For data breaches, there are timed responses to each stakeholder, but these are only relevant after the fact. In quality improvement, we talk a lot about the dangers and frustrations of reactive problem management where the team is always putting out fires rather than planning ahead for success. And the stakes are so high in healthcare information security, with the FBI even warning that cyber terror would be ramping up. The cost of a healthcare cyber incident is also ramping up. As IBM noted in the Cost of a Data Breach Report, the cost of the studied breach in healthcare reached $11 million last year. That's a 53% increase since 2020. These breaches cause lost work hours, expensive consultations, legal and compliance fees, and too often result in damages that shutter hospitals, despite a community's need for their services. So one quality improvement recommendation for healthcare information security is to provide proactive advisor lines for employees. It is important to provide the report an incident line to ensure prompt response to critical incidents, but it is possibly even more important to prevent such incidents from occurring. There are high-risk moments in information security, such as mergers, acquisitions, data transfers, full-scale migrations, and vendor changes. Prior to such events, information security officers can provide critical design advice to protect data and ensure that employees are aware of risks and pitfalls, safeguarding the business, as well as our patients' trust. There is also a need for cybersecurity consulting services to provide advanced decision-making guidance for business managers, rather than chasing problems when the system is already locked up in a ransomware attack. It helps so much to get advice ahead of time rather than after the fact. And this is part of the culture of safety that we emphasize in the physical environment, and it should not be absent from the digital environment. If it could save your system $11 million, it would be worth contracting a cybersecurity advisor line and providing interaction with employees to discuss data breach prevention. Number two, blockchain could be utilized for individual healthcare records. Imagine that your medical record number was permanently marked every time someone touched it. How difficult would it be to steal data without a trace? Or how hard would it be to tamper with clinical research in this environment? 
I'm not a blockchain expert by any means, and perhaps this is not feasible at scale. But surely there are opportunities for innovation along this train of thought. If our data was marked with a seal of ownership, how likely is it that authorities would be able to trace the data back to digital criminals and apprehend them for wreaking havoc on a hospital? Probably a lot better than the blind needle in a haystack that we are dealing with right now. The other advantage of this approach is that it puts security into the hands of personal ownership, rather than the dilemma of choosing whether to trust corporations or government with every detail of our last physical, or the genetic testing we conducted last year to check on our familial cancer risk, because true patient engagement begins with patient ownership and decision-making. Our access is only as good as our control over the visibility of our data. And when auditors in the government or health insurance companies or even offshore medical coders on the other side of the world review my record, none of them ask my permission. If I visit a website now due to European Union policies, I get asked if I want to allow cookies. But if someone wants to look at my record in India, they take a class about HIPAA and high-tech, sign a background check, and view everything from my last pap smear to genetic testing. I, however, must sign a waiver and sometimes even pay a fee just to get a hard copy of my own records to carry with me. If blockchain would allow me to trace these viewings and give me the opportunity to object, I would be all for it. In summary, it seems to me that regulations mandating healthcare progress do not produce all of the desired results. Disadvantaged communities have been left with inferior applications and insufficient time to learn and engage with them and the new system did not actually improve care. Systematic healthcare improvement needs a solid quality improvement plan that assesses needs, identifies problems, creates thoughtful implementation plans, and evaluates their efficacy. It seems that we're lacking that last step, and we should probably be evaluating the efficacy of HIPAA and high-tech before we launch a new wave of blanket Health Level 7 requirements and AI hoping to achieve the same goals as the last set of innovations failed to reach. If we don't take the time to understand why we didn't reach our destination with the last set of policies, how can we possibly course correct with the next one with identical goals? Thanks for listening to Quality for the Rest of Us. If you found this episode helpful, please consider liking and subscribing so you'll be notified when future episodes come out. If you have thoughts or questions, you can email qforus at porterqi.com. And if you're interested in joining our community, visit porterqi.com. You'll find podcast archives, helpful articles, innovative tools, and a knowledgeable group of professionals just like you. That's porterqi.com. I hope to see you there.